It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday. Monday through Friday. Glad to have you here. We always appreciate you listening live or on the podcast if you can. Podcast is free, on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com. A few other options there, including FoxNewsPodcasts.com. On today's show, Steve Hayes will be here later in the hour, joining me on Afghanistan. A few developments there. Jennifer Griffin, Fox News correspondent at the Pentagon, will be here in the next hour. There's a controversy involving General Milley, flying accusations, a new book, What is Actually Real, What is True. Jennifer will bring us what she is hearing from her sources. Also in our next hour, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, Republican of Georgia. That has been ground zero, really, the state of Georgia for American politics for the last half year in a number of ways, and there are big elections coming up next year in that state. He is not seeking re-election. He's got a new book out, sort of mapping out his concerns about the Republican Party and what just happened in 2020 and what he thinks the party needs to do moving forward. And I think whether you're a big fan of Trump or not, losing the Senate and the House and, of course, the presidency, that's not a great combination. So what does the future look like? What should it look like? We'll talk to a statewide office holder from one of the most important battlegrounds in the country. His book, by the way, is GOP 2.0. And then in our final hour, A.B. Stoddard will be here talking about some of the politics on Capitol Hill. The recall results last night in California, woof. And some really ugly new polling for President Biden as well. That's all coming up. Also joining me here in a matter of minutes will be one of our colleagues reporting from the southern border, which is where I'm going to begin after this Fox News alert. Stats, 41.4 million confirmed cases all time in the United States. The true number much bigger because of all the testing issues early on, underreporting, etc. The death toll from COVID in the United States, 664,231 millions more around the world. Good day on Wall Street. The Dow is up 219 points right now, rebounding from what was a rough day yesterday. It is currently trading the Dow, 34,794, and we'll keep an eye on that heading into the closing bell at the top of the hour. The border crisis at the U.S. southern border is something that we have... I won't say neglected because we've gone out of our way, actually, to make sure that we were not taking our eye off of that ball entirely, although it's difficult, right? When you have the Afghanistan withdrawal crisis playing out before our eyes in harrowing and humiliating fashion, that tends to capture your attention, right? People hanging from airplanes, calling into 
television shows begging to be let out of a country now controlled by a terrorist organization, huge broken promises, utter incompetence. That was and should have been the biggest story for weeks, and it continues to be a massive story. Then you've got a global pandemic ongoing, presidential overreach, inflation, bad economic numbers. I mean, sure, the list goes on. Then, you know, the, the fights that we talk about, some of the skirmishes that are entertaining but also illustrative of bigger issues like the Met Gala and AOC. We will briefly revisit that later. The nonsense with Nicki Minaj and swollen body parts and vaccines. We will likely not revisit that today, aside from saying that medical experts all over the world are saying, nope, what Nicki Minaj tweeted about a friend of a friend of a cousin or whatever, that's not a thing. But if they tweet it, she'll come after them and probably play the race card. In any case, all of that is to say the border crisis, which was a top story sort of front burner issue here on this program, has been maybe pushed back toward the back burner a little bit. Because of the swirl of other news that's been breaking. But we do not want to ignore the issue because it is not getting better. And there's a new report from Fox News just out today. It's a Fox exclusive that underscores that while we're all thinking about and talking about the Biden crisis in Afghanistan, the Biden crisis here at home, the Biden crisis at the southern border is very much ongoing and active. So here is what Fox is reporting today. Quote, There were more than 200,000 migrant encounters at the southern border in August, a DHS source told Fox News Wednesday. The second month in a row where the number has been over the 200,000 mark as migrants continue to attempt to enter the U.S. The source told Fox that there were 208,887 encounters in the month of August. That number in August represents a 317% increase over last August, where the number was around 50,000. 50,000 is a lot. It's not acceptable. It's at least sustainable and manageable. This is a 317% increase over last August when there was someone else in charge. It was not the Biden administration. With all of their permissive rhetoric, their pro-illegal immigration indications, their soft immigration policies, these have all had an impact, a very serious one. Some of the numbers came slightly down in August. One that went up over July was encounters of family units. A 4% increase over last month. But basically flat overall, the big number, close to 210,000 in one month. That is virtually unchanged from last month, which was already historically high, completely unsustainable. In the words of Alejandro Mayorkas, who was caught on tape calling it unsustainable, the DHS secretary, who hilarious says, hilariously says publicly, that the border is closed and secure. I will remind you as well as we think about these numbers, roughly 210,000 border encounters with illegal immigrants in one month. That does not include tens of thousands of so-called gotaways. 
who were not apprehended, who evaded apprehension, and the people trying to evade apprehension the most, it would make sense, it would follow, would disproportionately include people that might be the most dangerous. Cartels, traffickers, etc. Tens of thousands of them slipped through our border and were not encountered. That we know of. There are known gotaways, tens of thousands of them, and then an unknown number of unknown gotaways per month. We're going to get to our correspondent who's reporting at the border in just a moment, but I want to give you two more pieces of context and perspective. 208, 209,000 encounters at the southern border in August. Again, basically just as bad as July. The White House told us, well, seasonality applies here. This is their excuse back in the spring. It tends to go up in these months, but it's going to get very hot in the summer. The numbers will come down. That has not happened. They were dead wrong on that. The incentives are so strong to come here illegally that this massive surge has continued and grown in the hottest months. That number, 208, 209,000, that is roughly equivalent to the population of Little Rock, Arkansas, in one month. It is more than three times the number of people who live in the largest city in Joe Biden's home state of Delaware, in one month. And since Joe Biden took office starting February 1st, I know he took office a few days before that, but since February 1st, 2021, There have been more than 1.2 million border encounters by U.S. officials with illegal immigrants. Again, that does not count, that does not tabulate or include the probably, at this point, six figures of gotaways. We have 1.2 million encounters since February alone under the Biden administration. 1.2 million. The population of Delaware, Joe Biden's home state, is less than a million. There have been more encounters at the southern border with illegal immigrants since Joe Biden became president than the number of people who live in Joe Biden's state. I want you to think about that. The crisis is real and it is still happening. Even as other crises proliferate and play out, this is very serious. And again, to quote Mayorkas, not sustainable. So those are the statistics. What does it look like on the ground? We are joined now by our colleague, Bill Malugin, who has been covering this issue very faithfully and very well at the U.S. southern border now over the course of months. And he joins us from La Jolla, Texas. Bill, it's good to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So I just gave the audience a sense of the sheer scope of this problem. Month after month, the new Fox News report today about the August numbers coming in, basically undiminished. The crisis continues. I think a lot of people say, gosh, that's terrible. You know, that they'll place blame, I think, correctly at the people who are in charge of these policies. But it's not necessarily digestible on a human level of what this crisis actually looks like on the ground, and what it means for those communities. You're watching it firsthand. I watched you know, the videos that, and the photos that you tweet out on a regular basis and that you include in your reports on Fox News Channel. Maybe just paint a picture for us 
of on a day-to-day basis what this means and what it looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll tell you one thing. It's it's one thing seeing the border crisis on TV. Uh, it's another thing actually seeing it here in person. My first few trips to the border, my jaw was kind of on the floor because, I, you know, everybody kind of pictures just kind of a border wall out in the open desert, that sort of a thing. Where we are in La Jolla right now, all, all this activity is butted up right against a residential neighborhood. So you have situations where you have hundreds of people coming across, running, fleeing from Border Patrol, running through neighborhoods, human smuggler pursuits, crashing into houses. It's, 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 it's happening literally in people's backyards, in their neighborhoods, in certain parts of the border. And I, I think one of the most striking things is at the beginning of this crisis, the administration kept saying, oh, it's seasonal, all oh, this happens every year, oh, it'll slow down in the warmer weather, which is what you were mentioning earlier, but it, that was just blatantly false. That is absolutely not true. The numbers just shot up like a rocket ship over summer. And you, the point you made about, you know, the size of Little Rock, Arkansas showing up here in one month, absolutely correct. Those numbers are absolutely staggering. I mean, Customs and Border Protection had to add an entire new bar to their charts <laughs> showing, right. showing how high these numbers were getting because it was literally off the charts. And it's happening month after month after month after month. We thought we thought 170,000 was high. Then we thought 185,000 was high. Then we thought uh, then it jumps up to 212,000. Now we have a tiny dip to 208,000. But nothing, these are all 20-year record high numbers. And absolutely nothing has been slowing down out here. And you you look at some of the images that our drone team gets, or whether it's here in the Rio Grande Valley or up in Del Rio, it's it's remarkable. And you talk to these border agents on the ground, not only are they so thankful that we're out here covering this because they feel no one else is, and they, they, they kind of want to throw their hands up in the air because they feel like they've been turned into social workers or administrative paperwork guys now. They're just frustrated. They're so overwhelmed. They don't have the resources to cope with this. And what our drone team just saw in Del Rio today is, once again, we've got more than 4,000 migrants just sitting under the international bridge there waiting to be picked up by Border Patrol uh, after they crossed into the U.S. because Border Patrol facilities are completely over capacity, completely overwhelmed. So you have thousands of people just sitting out there waiting to be picked up, and there's nowhere for them to go right now. Meanwhile, more people are streaming in by the minute. It's just it's not slowing down. And when you hear the administration say, oh, we're making extreme progress, oh, it's seasonal, oh, it, it's just not true. And um, I think a lot of people would have their opinions changed if they actually physically came out here to the border and maybe did a ride along or talk to state troopers, talk to Border Patrol and physically see what's going on down here. Yeah, it's out of control. The numbers, to use your word, are staggering. They are historic highs. They are continuing. It cannot be sustained. The administration admits this privately and somewhat publicly. And yet here we are. And maybe it's gotten a little bit less attention because of the other crises that are underway right now. But this one has not been mitigated. It has not slowed down. It has certainly not gone, gone away. And the reporting from people like Bill Malugin down at the border, I think, is absolutely essential to make sure that the American people continue to understand that this ongoing failure is, in fact, ongoing with no end in sight. And it comes back to rhetoric and policies from the top. Bill Malugin in La Jolla, Texas for us. Bill, thank you. Thank you. When we come back, a flashback soundbite from just a few days ago on this subject, but also related to another huge crisis. They sort of converged in an amazing quote from the White House press secretary. We'll play it for you next. 
You're listening to Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. By the way, one irony here is there's a Trump-era policy involving immigration and COVID that has allowed the Biden administration to turn away a good chunk of these illegal immigrants showing up at the border, which the left is agitating to get rid of that policy. And the Biden people are kicking the can. Then there's the stay in Mexico policy that was successful, that Biden reversed foolishly, idiotically, because Trump, Supreme Court swatted that down, and that could actually help Biden get out of the problem that he has caused for himself, at least partially, as the months progress. But we've got this border crisis, The numbers we laid out in the last segment speak for themselves. They're awful. We also have mandates flying around and demands about science or what have you from the president when it comes to COVID. And this reminded me just a few days ago at the White House, our colleague Peter Ducey asked a question of Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary. Just listen to cut 30. But it's a requirement for people at a business with more than 100 people, and it's not a requirement for migrants at the southern border. Why? That's correct. Go ahead. And she moves on to the next question. Ducey just pointing out, well, hang on here. If you're an American citizen who wants to show up for your job at your private business, the president is going to try to force that person to get a vaccine. I say that as a very pro-vaccine person. I'm not sure about the legality of this attempted mandate from the president and the executive branch. But Ducey says, so that's going to be the standard applied to American citizens. But if you're crossing the border illegally, violating our sovereignty, showing up in America, you don't have to get vaccinated for COVID in the middle of a pandemic with a wave of Delta, especially in southern states that we've experienced recently. And Saki says, that's correct, and moves on. No, no extra context. That's just correct. You Americans have a mandate. The illegal immigrants do not. I wonder if that might... Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share make it into some campaign ads in 2022 as we consider the priorities of this administration again sometimes it feels like you're living in a cartoon world where right-wingers are inventing this stuff except it's real new from the fox news podcasts network my name is kennedy and welcome to my podcast which will i humbly say single-handedly save the world you're welcome it's kennedy saves the world subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com talking about the issues you care about guy benson 
We continue here on the Guy Benson Show. Wednesday edition here. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. We are joined now by Steve Hayes, Fox News contributor, editor, and CEO of The Dispatch, at Stephen F. Hayes on Twitter. Steve, good to have you back. Hey, Guy. How are you? I'm doing well. I want to talk about Afghanistan. It's an issue that I don't want to just let slip away. I saw this come across from the Washington Post and from National Review. Josh Rogan was emphasizing this on social media. Apparently, the U.S. State Department is urging Afghan allies who were abandoned in a broken promise to them by the United States, by the President of the United States, those who are desperate to get out of a country run now by a terrorist organization that would like to see them dead, the State Department is urging them to go to a U.S. embassy in a neighboring country. And I'm sure they would love to do something like that. Part of the issue is getting out of the country, which is the whole point, Steve. I mean, it it just seems like the embarrassment compounds on a daily basis. Exactly. Now, that's very well put. I mean, I think we're learning more and more both about what took place in the weeks leading up to our withdrawal and sort of final abandonment of both American citizens and our Afghan allies. But we're also going to continue to hear these stories. These are not going to end because nobody has a real grip on the exact number of Afghans uh, who were eligible to, to leave um, or who helped us. But we know that we left tens of thousands of them in country. And some of them are starting to speak out. I think for a while they were reluctant to speak out or, or to speak out under their own name because they still held the hope that the United States would make good on its promises and do the right thing. They've lost that hope now in many cases. And they've decided to speak out and, and tell their stories because they don't know what else to do. They know that staying in Afghanistan with the Taliban reportedly having uh, many lists of the Afghan nationals who worked with the U.S. government and the U.S. military in Afghanistan for years makes them sitting ducks. So they're increasingly, I think, willing to speak out if for no other reason than to, to, to show that, that we did abandon them and that we did break our promises. It's really just a, a, an unfortunate situation, and it's not getting better. And just a reminder of the barbarity of the Taliban, there was a report that Jim Garrity shared from his sources on the ground that the Taliban just recently executed two children. They beheaded two children, allegedly aged 9 and 10. I mean, this is... This is who the Taliban is. This should not be a surprise to anyone. You were talking about some folks now finally speaking up because they've realized uh, just how completely and comprehensively the promises that were made to them, the solemn life-and-death promises that were made to them have just completely been discarded and thrown away, whether it's you know through this type of recommendation, oh, just shelter in place, try to find a U.S. embassy in some other country, maybe ask the U.N. for help. They recognize that if not for private efforts from Americans, about which, by the way, the Biden administration has been complaining in the media about you know how meddlesome that has been and, and not helpful, which really takes some real chutzpah to Dutch. criticize any effort to actually fulfill these promises, people are, it's dawning on them what their new very frightening reality is and you were amplifying on social some reporting done at your website the dispatch 
uh, just within the last few days, quoting one gentleman by name who seemed distraught and utterly betrayed. Talk about that. Yeah, we have a, a really terrific piece uh, on the Dispatch website right now by Charlotte Lawson, my colleague, who has been in touch. She's been sort of following the story from the beginning and has been in touch with Afghans on the ground who, who were left. And you know, I think this goes to the first question you asked, Guy, uh, with the, the U.S. government now advising people to get out of the country and then go uh, to U.S. consular offices elsewhere. Some of them can't, right? Some of them are elderly and not in a position to just get out of the country, even if they had wanted to, even if they weren't concerned about risking their, their lives fleeing the Taliban, they literally physically can't in some cases. And Charlotte writes about uh, a young man who's trying to get out of the, the uh, was, was trying to get out of Afghanistan, um, had been pushing for, for days, uh, not trying to cash in on his contacts, given uh, the, the number of years that he worked with senior U.S. military officials, but having very little luck finally gets uh, on, on a flight out, one of the last flights out from uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport in, in Kabul, uh, but is not allowed to take his mother, who is sick, very sick. And uh, she was at the airport, near the airport, when uh, the, the suicide bombing took place. And she's left in country. She's not in a position to pick up and go to another country uh, to get out and, and to, to have the U.S. help her. And I am afraid that there are many, many hundreds, thousands of stories like hers um, that that are going to be the way that Afghans come to think of the United States. You know, when I, when I was doing some reporting years ago in the lead up to the war in Iraq, I uh, went to Dearborn, Michigan, and I talked to a, a great number of um, Shiites who had fled Iraq back uh, after the, the first Gulf War. And I was asking them questions about the United States and about the possibility of war in Iraq. And I was interviewing one young man who was very eager for the United States to try to overthrow Saddam Hussein, but wary of the word of the United States, because he said, back in 1991, George H.W. Bush asked the, the Kurds and the Shiites to rise up against Saddam Hussein and said, in effect, the United States would have your, will have your back if you do it. And this young man, I think he was in his mid-20s when I talked to him, but he was just a boy back when George, w., George H.W. Bush uh, said this. In the middle of my interview with him, he recited George H.W. Bush's words word for word, verbatim, remembered what he had said and said to me in this interview, you broke your promise. People died because your country broke its promise. If we think that that's not going to be the consequence of this, which is, oh, on a massive you know, scale. Which is that times times a thousand, it's going to create additional problems for us down the road. Well, and just huge credibility and trust issues with people who we need to help us. And there was a quote, I'm paraphrasing from the article that you were just referencing in the dispatch, where this guy says, who, you know, helped us for so many years at, you know, risk to himself and his family. And he said, this is the thanks that I get for yeah. being loyal for all those years. And you can just, you can read, it jumps off the page, the, the depth of the betrayal. So that's, exactly. 
that's what is being felt right now among the tens of thousands of Afghan allies who cannot be processed, who were not rescued, who were left behind, even though just days prior to the U.S. leaving them behind, Joe Biden promised we wouldn't, then we did. The even more shocking piece of it is the Americans that we left behind, which Biden had gone even further saying we will keep boots on the ground until every American is out. And that was also not true. That was a lie. Uh, We got out, in fact, a day earlier than we needed to, and we left a certain number of Americans behind. And, And to me, Steve, this is one of the bigger revelations this week from the Secretary of State in his various uh, hearings on Capitol Hill, they've been very, I would say, coy and evasive with the number that they've been giving about U.S. citizens and sort of narrowly defining, okay, there are about 100 American citizens still left. I don't really believe that number. Uh, You and I have talked about this. I I still don't believe that number. But even if it's in, in the ballpark of something that's, you know, close to correct, that's been the same number for two-plus weeks now. It sounds like yeah. they're not really making any progress on those U.S. citizens. And then Blinken finally had to admit under oath that the number of Americans who are stuck in the country and stranded are, in fact, in the thousands because yes. permanent legal residents and green card holders are Americans. They are our responsibility. They have a, yes. a, a legal um, permission. They have a, you know legal access to this country, to be protected by this country, to live in this country. They are Americans. I know the left often has these capacious definitions of what counts as American when it comes to immigration, but here it's these rhetorical games are narrowing yeah. it down you know, as, as narrowly as they possibly can to this little sliver of people to avoid the thousands of Americans that they don't want to talk about or really count because that number looks a lot worse because it makes um, the, the breadth of betrayal of Americans look and sound even worse than it already did. Yeah, it, it, this is really outrageous. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's worth dwelling for a moment on this. They're lying to us, right? I mean, they may not know the exact number, but they know it's far, far more than 100. I mean, even as they kept using that number or approximately 100, they would often qualify it in one way or another. They were also at the same time releasing updates about others extracted from the country, others who were evacuated from the country. But the number never went down in a uh-huh. corresponding way. Look, nobody, uh, you know, I'm talking to people who are working with, with folks trying to get people out. I'd ask them, what's the number? What do you think the number is? And nobody can give me an exact number, but unanimously, without exception, they mocked the administration's number. They said, well, that number's nonsense. That's crazy. It's not the case. And I've been a part of some conversations with, with folks who are, are working on this, some of them elected officials, others in the private sector. And, and we'll just do sort of a rough tally, like literally going around the table. Okay, I know 50. I know 30. I know 17. You know, this, this member of Congress has 12 constituents. And you just do the math. And you're so far above 100. It doesn't even make sense. So, look, they're playing cute with with the categories, they're playing cute with the counts at a time when what we need from our government, what we need from the administration is some, some straight talk, some, some straight dealing and, and no, tell us the truth. We're it's way a past failure. That. No, it's they can't failure. tell. They can't tell the truth. They cannot tell the truth because they have screwed this up so royally that we literally abandoned 
thousands of Americans in a Taliban-controlled terrorist state after the president promised repeatedly that would never happen, and they did this so poorly and so outrageously that this is the result of their failed policy, and just admitting it out loud and saying, we did not tell the truth, and there are thousands of Americans who are stranded. I mean, they had they had the gall to critique and scold Peter Ducey for using the word stranded a few days before right. they, you know, made official the stranding. I mean, they, yep. they are just grasping at whatever political rhetoric they can use at the moment for damage control to try to spin their way past this because the substance and the reality is so bad as to be indefensible. Now, Steve, I want to play a soundbite for you. This was from yesterday in the Senate hearing. Uh, Senator Romney of Utah was asking the Secretary of State about the relationship between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. And Americans may remember al-Qaeda as the uh, organization that attacked us on 9-11 and killed 3,000 Americans, roughly. And I know that there is this fantasy that we're being fed by the Biden administration that, oh, well, the Taliban has made all sorts of assurances to us about helping us get our people out and our allies out, and we expect them to live up to those things, and they're falling short of our expectations about diversity in government and inclusion, but they have told us they're not going to allow a terrorist threat to metastasize. They're not going to give aid and comfort to al-Qaeda again, which is what happened pre-9-11. So Romney asked about that. Here's the back and forth in Cut 11. In your view, Mr. Secretary, has, has the Taliban abandoned their sympathy and coll- collaboration with groups like al-Qaeda and the Haqqani Network? Um, do, do they continue to have the same aim, and are, are, they, uh, are they of like spirit? Or, uh, or, or has, that, uh, uh, has that relationship been, been severed? Uh, the relationship is, has not been severed, uh, and it's a very open question as to whether um, their views... Uh, and the uh, relationship has changed in any kind of definitive way. So Steve Blinken admits the relationship between the Taliban, which now runs the country, and al-Qaeda has not been severed, so they still have this relationship. They put a top terrorist in the cabinet, right, among others, several top terrorists in the cabinet. Yeah. I mean, how can they say they won't, they won't allow al-Qaeda to operate when they are putting effectively al-Qaeda terrorists in the government. Yeah, look, it's totally absurd. They, they can't say that. It's completely incoherent, and they deserve to be roasted for this every time they say it. It's dangerous, honestly. It's dangerous when they say things like this, because either they're knowingly being dishonest and misleading the American people because they know, as Blinken grudgingly acknowledged there and others have grudgingly acknowledged in other contexts, that, of course, the Taliban and al-Qaeda are not that of course they're not going to, uh, there's, there's never going to be some split. You, you have uh, Taliban and al-Qaeda putting up videos right now, putting up propaganda videos celebrating the 9-11 attacks. The Taliban put out a, a video celebrating the 9-11 attacks in the aftermath of what we saw in Afghanistan over the past several weeks. There, there's never going to be this split. So either the Biden administration, when they suggest that there, that there will be or there might be, or when they even more absurdly suggest that the Taliban might work as a U.S. counterterrorism partner in Afghanistan, they're either lying, and certainly I don't think there's much intelligence to support what they're saying, um, or, or they're just totally clueless. 
And neither one of those things should give us any comfort as we try. Yeah, to, you know, I'm uh, my inclination at this point is to go with lying. I mean, I think they've they've lied enough that my default assumption here is lying. Uh, but if it is yeah. merely disgraceful incompetence, disqualifying incompetence, that, as you point out, Steve, would hardly be uh, comforting, I think, to the American people, and certainly to the American people who are stuck and stranded in that country as we speak and have been now for weeks. Steve Hayes, Fox News contributor, editor, and CEO of The Dispatch. Steve, appreciate your time. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks, Guy. It's The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News Podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's the Guy Benson Show. Well, the California recall, my expectations were low for reasons that I explained here on the show, and the results seem to be even worse than I had feared. As of right now, not only has Gavin Newsom kept his job, I mean, that's that's sealed. The margin is 28 percentage points. It was not even close. California is, it's gone. I mean, it, it's a state where perhaps the Republican Party could be a little bit more competitive with a more functional party. They don't have that, and it is just a deep blue state. Larry Elder, who is the leading Republican, said last night that we lost the battle, but we are certainly going to win the war. I think that is very optimistic, given what we just saw. Gavin Newsom, in victory, came out and just said a bunch of buzzwords. We said yes to science, yes to vaccines, yes to ending the pandemic, economic justice, social justice, racial justice, environmental justice. On and on. And the people of California looked around at what's happening in their state and said, let's keep this guy as governor. I wonder if to celebrate, as I said on Special Report last night, the governor maybe went to the French Laundry for dinner. Word is he likes that place. Middle hour of the Guy Benson Show. Coming up, Jennifer Griffin joins us when we return. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every single day. Fox News alert. The Dow ends up today in the green, up 236 points, closing at 34,814. Joining us now is Jennifer Griffin, national security correspondent at Fox News, and she has been covering a number of major stories very closely for the last few weeks. Jennifer, it's good to have you back on the show. Thank you, Guy. Happy to be here. I want to first ask you about all of these allegations against General Milley 
and they're emanating from a new book by Bob Woodward. A lot of people are very upset. The word treason has been thrown around. I know he has testimony upcoming later in the month before Congress. What can you tell us about what the accusation is against him and what you are learning as you talk to officials about this controversy? Well, what I'm finding from talking to officials who are involved in the conversations, there are two key points that the Woodward book tried to pin um, on General Milley, and um, and they include, one, that he had two phone calls with his Chinese counterpart in which he was trying to lower the temperature because there was intelligence at the time suggesting that the Chinese thought the U.S. was going to carry out a surprise military strike in that interim period around the time of the election and through to the inauguration. And General Milley's uh, goal in having those calls, and by the way, they're being described in the book and in subsequent reporting by other news organizations as secret calls. And from what I have been able to uh, report, they were not secret. They involved 15 people being in the room for these video teleconferences. They were briefed to the interagency. They were, in fact, uh, General Milley had conversations with the Secretary of State and the Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, um, after one of those calls. And and so, and one of the defense secretaries at the time, Mark Esper, went during the October phone call, had in fact ordered his own policy advisors to reach out to Chinese counterparts to lower the temperature and to avoid any sort of misunderstanding where in which the U.S. and China could stumble into a war. In fact, I spoke to a senior, uh, former senior uh, Trump defense official who tells me that uh, that Mark Esper, the defense secretary at the time, was so concerned about China misunderstanding U.S. Uh, troop movements and ship movements that he asked U.S. Pacific Command, and this is from sources corroborated with U.S. Pacific Command, he asked them to uh, delay some exercises that were slated for December and some warships that were supposed to move out into the Pacific in that vulnerable time frame around the election because, again, he didn't want a miscalculation. From my understanding of the conversation with, um, again, there were note takers from the Pentagon. This was not a secret phone call. It was a video teleconference call with many, many people observing and taking notes. Uh, there was nothing untoward said to the Chinese uh, counterpart. Millie had been talking to this uh, this Chinese general for five years uh, from the time he was an army chief to his role as chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Nothing unusual about that. Uh, in fact, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs often speaks to, he periodically speaks to his Russian and Chinese counterpart for this very reason, so that the lines of communication are open and that there aren't misunderstandings. So I think the Chinese phone call is really being blown out of proportion. There are certainly the usual political suspects who are trying to make hay with it. Um, General Milley has gotten crosswise with a number of people on the Hill because of his outspoken um, nature as well as uh, you know, a perception at the end of the Trump administration that that he was pushing back on some of the um, the efforts by uh, in those final days, particularly around the time of the riot uh, on, on January 6th. Now, that brings me to the second big allegation in the Woodward book, and that is that uh, General Milley inserted himself somehow and tried to usurp the power of the nuclear launch. There's nothing further than the truth. In fact, I had reporting at the time. What happened, in fact, was that two days after the January 6th riot, 
Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi called General Milley. She was extremely upset. In fact, it was described to me as she was almost distraught. She was yelling at the general, saying, you must take the nuclear football away from this president. He's crazy. General Milley listened and tried to calm the speaker down and reassure her that the nuclear uh, protocols were intact, that there are multiple layers that include people at the Pentagon as well as at U.S. Strategic Command. And so in the wake of that phone call, he then uh, took it upon himself to talk to the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who used to be a head of U.S. Strategic Command, uh, and to speak to some other members of the Joint Chiefs and people in the chain of command of that, and to go over the protocols that if a nuclear weapon is called for to be launched by the president, the president is the only person who can call for such a thing, but the president doesn't do it alone. The president has to go through these layers at the Pentagon. And so this was kind of like a standard operating procedure, fire drill, if you will, to say, does everybody know their role? Let's just remind each other what the protocol is and to remind people that he is still the top uh, military advisor to the president. And when there is a uh, conference call, uh, as is required by law and statute, if a nuclear weapon is called for, uh, that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs is on that phone call. And that was simply what the conversation was, and that has gotten distorted as General Milley trying to take the nuclear weapons away from President Trump. Jennifer Griffin, I know you've got to run. One quick question, though, uh, about a report in Axios related to this book and the allegations against Milley, quoting here from Jonathan Swan, quote, in the account, the Woodward account, Milley reportedly assures the Chinese general that Trump would not attack China, and this is key, and that if Trump did decide to attack, Milley would give his Chinese counterpart a secret heads up. To me, that seems like a very explosive allegation what can you say I'm about that? I'm just not that? sure it happened. The problem is I'm just not sure it happened. Again, we are relying on unnamed sources in a uh, a book that none of us have read um, that are being reported in small excerpts in the media. And, and so based on the conversations I've had with people, again, 15 people were privy to those video teleconference calls. The context is important. The The discussion was not about, hey, if President Trump uh, launches a war against you, China, I'm going to give you a heads up. It was, hey, that's not how things work. The U.S. military, it, you know, we are not carrying out, a, you know, remember, there was intelligence at the time that had the Chinese very jittery that the U.S. was planning some sort of surprise strike. Uh, that was not true. If you ask President Trump and his team, that was not true. President Trump himself has said he was not uh, threatening a strike against China. So this was an attempt to lower the temperature to prevent any disinformation from pushing both sides into a war. And what I think has been described to me as the conversation was that when the U.S. military goes to war or starts a war, you see evidence of it. You see ship movements. You see troop movements. You see warplanes being positioned. Uh, it's very hard to miss when the U.S. goes to war. Um, it's a little different when the U.S. gets out of a war. That could be a sudden movement, and that can surprise allies and others, adversaries. But this was a this was a conversation designed to lower the temperature. It was not a secret conversation, and it was not a secret deal with the Chinese. That is a misreporting of the way that video teleconference call went, as far as my reporting. 
Jennifer Griffin, national security correspondent at Fox News. I know you've got a TV deadline that you're up against, so we will let you go. But thank you for your insights, Jennifer. Thank you, Guy. Now, I just a few things to say about this, because some of you might be wondering, oh, you know, why haven't we covered this more extensively? Because there are people all over the place shouting, calling for resignations, using the word treason, traitor, that kind of thing. I think part of the reason that I've been trying to keep my powder dry on this a little bit is because I don't know what the truth is. I don't know what the book says. I don't know if the sourcing is correct. I don't know if something, some game of telephone happened and the allegations spun up into something much more serious than what actually occurred. Jennifer Griffin right there suggesting perhaps that's what happened based on her own reporting and very high-level people that she's spoken to. I just didn't want to immediately get out over my skis and start you know, asserting things on this show about which – I don't really have any confident knowledge. And I think we're still in the early days of this controversy. I think we're going to hear from Millie under oath. There will probably be leaks and counter leaks, and perhaps more evidence will emerge one way or another. I think if some of these allegations, if, 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 some of these allegations are true or even close to true, then Millie probably should resign. Or worse, right? I mean, the the worst spin on some of these allegations is, you know, really disgraceful stuff. And I'm not necessarily a huge fan of General Milley in general. I think that in some ways he has gotten political. I think some of the the woke stuff and uh, you know identity politics seeping into the military, the way that he's defended that has not completely sat well with me. I think he's gotten a bad rap in other respects. He's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I do not want to immediately assume the worst about this person or what he did. And I just want to wait and see what is actually true and verifiable. Which is why I've not, you know, dived in head first to a bunch of talking head commentary, going out, you know, going off half cocked, not really understanding what really happened. So I think Jennifer there just gave us, she's very extremely well-sourced and has been in this town and around the U.S. military and reporting on it for years. I respect her a lot. So she seems to be saying this is overblown, didn't go down this way. I would love to know more and hear more. On the worst end of this spectrum, heads should roll, one in particular, rhetorically speaking, obviously. On the other end of the spectrum, this is a D.C. flare-up where people are engaged in a lot of heat and not a lot of light, and I'm just trying to avoid that trap on this show. But it's something that we will follow and that we will monitor as well. With that, I want to step aside. I want to talk about the Virginia governor's race because California, we talked about it last hour, we'll touch on it next hour again, but the recall was a debacle for the Republican Party out there. A party that is broken, massively outnumbered, dysfunctional, disorganized. Virginia is at least a semblance of a swing state still. And there's a very important governor's race coming up in a matter of weeks, early November in Virginia. The Democrats might be slightly favored at this point. Turnout is going to be a very important part of this game. 
And Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic hack, former DNC chairman, election truther back in 2000, former governor of Virginia, he wants that job back. And he's been caught in a moment of COVID hypocrisy. I feel like it's almost a job description now for Democratic officials, Democratic politicians to sort of impose a bunch of rules and then and and celebrate and fetishize those rules and then break them because they're important and other people are not. It did not hurt Gavin Newsom in California. Apparently the people of California are satisfied with what's happening in California. I was just out there. I mean, those voters can do what they want, I guess. I would be absolutely gone if I lived there personally. But Across the river from Virginia is D.C. Mayor Bowser, as I mentioned, photographed the other day, again violating her mask mandate indoors. She doesn't care. Nancy Pelosi's blowout. I mean, you just the list goes down. And the latest one is Terry McAuliffe. We'll tell you what he did with some detail and a little bit of a personal color to it as well as soon as we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Guy Benson, we're back. Thanks for listening. It's the Guy Benson Show. So a couple weeks ago, I was returning to D.C. from New York. I was there for TV, and I was... I think I took a morning train because I was coming back to do the show from D.C. And on my trip on Amtrak with the train, it was so annoying to me what happened that I ended up sort of ranting about it here on the show for an entire segment. You may recall this if you're a regular listener, and if you are, thank you. What happened was it felt like every 30 minutes the conductor got on the loudspeaker in the intercom system and hectored us about mask wearing, about how it doesn't matter if you're vaccinated or not. It's federal law that we must wear our masks. If we don't, we're subject to all sorts of fines and punishment. We could be banned for life from Amtrak. And he got, I mean, very specific and officious. He was saying, unless you are actively eating or drinking, you must have your mask on. And this is what doesn't count. You have to be literally sipping or chewing. And I just thought about when he walked by next time to be like, hey, are you going to do some spot mouth checks to make sure that I'm truly chewing on this sandwich at, at this moment without my mask on? Is this good enough for you, your highness? It was a lot. And they have signs all over the train cars about mask requirements and why it's important and how unless you're actively eating or drinking, you must have your mask on. I mean, it was it was not even close to subtle. It was in your face. <laughs> no pun intended. Now, Terry McAuliffe, what does he have to do with this? Terry McAuliffe is running for governor in Virginia. The election is weeks away. He's the Democratic nominee. He's running a bunch of ads in northern Virginia targeting suburbanites and parents and, you know, highly educated, mostly white voters saying, I am the science candidate. I love science. 
I effing love science so much, unlike my Trump opponent. My Trump opponent hates science. He doesn't even want children to be required to wear masks in school. Parentheses. That's actually the pro-science position, based on actual data. I know the Democrats don't believe that, but it's true. But he loves masks. He's tweeted about masking. He is one of these people who fetishizes all of the restrictions and all of the mandates. Because it's for our own good, and it's for science, and it's for health. And he's the science health guy. And the terrible, terrible Trump, 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 Trump guy, who's not Trumpy at all, by the way. Glenn Youngkin, the Republican running. I mean, I think he was a Trump supporter, but in no way is he comparable to Trump, but this is what they're doing to try to scare a bunch of suburban women in particular that it's, you know, Trump 2.0 and therefore, oh no, we, we can't, we have to vote for the Democrats again. It might work, it might not. It's a close race. Terry McAuliffe yesterday was spotted on the Amtrak and I'll give you one guess what he was not doing. He was not wearing his mask. He was on his phone marching down the aisle maskless, yammering away to someone on the phone. Everyone in the car has been threatened. They must wear their mask. It doesn't matter if you're vaccinated. Unless you're sipping water or something, wear that mask or you could be bounced forever. And Mr. Mandate, Mr. Science, who wants to preen about how much he fetishizes this stuff in an appeal to voters, he couldn't be bothered to follow that rule on the train. Different rules for different people. It's exhausting. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show, midway through the show. Midway through the week on this Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free. We are joined now by the Lieutenant Governor of the state of Georgia. Jeff Duncan is here. And Mr. Lieutenant Governor, it's great to have you on the show. Great to be on, Guy. Thanks for the opportunity. You have a new book out. It's called GOP 2.0. How the 2020 election can lead to a better way forward for America's conservative party. And I was intrigued by this book simply because I think that we are at least on some level in agreement that the path of the Republican Party at the moment does not seem sustainable or terribly robust or encouraging when it comes to the long-term prospects of the party. And I understand things change and there are inroads being made within certain communities, even as other voters have treaded away from the GOP. But look no further than your state, Georgia, where Republicans did not come together, did not turn out the way they needed to. And the United States Senate flipped from red to blue with both Senate seats shifting to the Democratic column in a runoff election where Republicans had traditionally done well. And there are a number of different factors that led to that. And I think it's had really significant, severe consequences for the country. I think many people are eager to make sure that never happens again. But some of the dynamics that led to that disaster, I think, are very much still in play, which is concerning. Let's start here. What was the impetus for you to write GOP 2.0 
from the perspective of a statewide elected Republican leader in a purplish red state that might be becoming purplish blue if the party can't get its act together? Yeah, GOP 2.0 started with me more than a book. It, it was a movement. It was it was a notion that we needed to to turn the page on our approach. Uh, you know, I think the difficult part would be if we as, as Republicans and conservatives were really far apart on our policy ideas. That's not the case. Uh, I think we're, we're, we're very closely aligned on where we think the policies need to be and, and, and matching up with a center-right-leaning country uh, for, for, for the whole. Um, but for me, the approach was, was what was the, the fundamental issue. You could see it coming. Uh, we certainly could see it here in Georgia, at least I could. Uh, and then the 10 weeks of the, of the post-election uh, period of time really just led, us, uh, led me to put on, on paper uh, a better strategy, a better pathway forward for us to try to start winning these things again, because it's uh, my conservative values uh, that I care about and, and yours and, and others listening uh, are just too important to just throw, throw away because we can't win one election. Joe Biden narrowly won the state of Georgia. And then the two Democratic challengers to the two Republican incumbent senators narrowly won weeks later. How did that happen? We know the broad strokes. Republicans didn't turn out. There was a circular firing squad. The president was attacking Governor Kemp. He was attacking you. A lot of those attacks continue to this day. And I guess the the follow-up question would be, as we're looking ahead to 2022 and the next cycle, have things improved at all in the state of Georgia when there's going to be a crucial gubernatorial and Senate race in your state? Well, certainly the, the last nine or ten months have been a chaotic period of time for us here in Georgia uh, as, as a whole, but also as, as, as a party. Uh, you know, one of the key statistics that I hang on to as, as the lieutenant governor, I'm also the president of the Senate. And, uh, you know, we got 56 senators, uh, of which we, we had 35 uh, go up for reelection. Uh, in uh, our chamber, and 34 Republicans were able to come back. 53.7% of Georgians voted for a Republican state senator in the election that, unfortunately, Joe Biden had more votes than than the former President Trump did here in Georgia. That's encouraging to me that that there's still conservative values that are important to Georgians, and I think that's really the case nationwide. Uh, We lost on a stylistic flaw, our style of not not reminding folks of the policies that make sense, and and I, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about this, of the policies that, that really make us all conservatives, that really line up with the country, and also a couple of the policies that I think it's important for us to start to move our feet on slightly just to show folks uh, on all sides of the issues that we're willing to listen to conversations around some big issues. We've had Governor Kemp on this show a number of times, and we've talked to him about the blizzard of dishonest attacks coming from the left on, for example, the elections law that you all passed and is now implemented and we saw you know preening and criticisms and a dishonest demagoguery from corporations institutions like major league baseball of course the media of course the democratic party so just a massive amount of misinformation there on the other side you have misinformation about the election in 2020 on the right among many trump supporters and my concern is if the left continues their united attacks against Republicans in Georgia, while Republicans, at least on some level, are divided. I mean, that to me could spell an outcome where you've got Senator Warnock getting reelected because he's only in a two year partial term right now. And someone like Stacey Abrams becoming governor, because it didn't take that many people becoming disenchanted with the electoral process and losing faith in it. And that a lot of that was stoked by President Trump. 
you know, trying to give this mixed message. We need you to turn out, but also it's all rigged and there's so much corruption and it's all dirty and the Republicans are in on it or they're not fighting hard enough. You had hundreds of thousands of Republicans who turned out in November who did not turn out in January. That was enough to hand two precious, crucial, you know, pendulum swinging seats in the U.S. Senate to the other party. I'm just deeply concerned that we're not even talking about issues or ideas or principles or policies. It's this sort of tribal, visceral dissent within the GOP coalition that is the best thing that Democrats could ever hope for. They've already benefited greatly from it in your state. And I, I guess I'm just concerned that they're going to benefit again, potentially, next year. Yeah, losing those two Senate seats was was just one of the most politically troubling things I ever watched play out in front of me here in Georgia. All eight statewide constitutional officers are Republicans. This is this was every bit of a red state. But to watch that unforced error uh, play out over those 10 weeks, uh, unfortunately, if they would have spent all that time talking about all the great wins they've had for Georgians with conservative mindsets, they'd still be sitting there and our Senate would be in the hands of Republicans. And, and look, I, I think really what we're watching play out here in America is, and I hope the folks that, that were uh, reluctant, now reluctant Biden voters, that were our Republicans or conservatives on paper, but just couldn't do, just couldn't vote for President Trump. I hope they're watching and, and they're paying attention to leadership because it matters. Uh, when you're watching the, the, the net the net effect of having a President Biden in there making those big decisions, it almost seems like every week there's an additional layer or additional gaff of failed leadership, right? I mean, I mean, we could just go pick apart. Uh, you know, the analogy I gave about the economy the other day was we got millions of people going to their mailbox today, opening it up, getting a handwritten letter from somebody that wants to pay them 40% more than their house is probably really worth. Their 401k statement below that is probably 40% more than it was two years ago. And then a check from Joe Biden for a federal stimulus package. Uh, th- those just don't jive in the economy. Then you've got Afghanistan, and then you've got the COVID and the mandates that just don't make sense and just make this an even more divisive issue. Leadership matters, and that's our only hope here. Our hope is that we all work together for the common good. We forget the previous election cycle. We wake up and realize that if we put our policies out there for Americans to view and vet, we do it with a little more empathy and try to reach out to those that we want to grow the tent with, and we do all that with a better tone, I think we got a shot. And, uh, look, I'm hoping America count- counts on-, on Republicans being back in charge. In the state of Georgia in particular, talk to us about the record under your leadership and, of course, uh, Governor Kemp as well. Are there things that you believe Republicans will be able to point to next fall, and we've talked to Kemp about a number of these things as well, where perhaps some of the drama of 2020 can be put in the rearview mirror and people can come back together? Because, honestly, if Republicans are roughly on the same page and performing – generally, I would say functionally in Georgia, I think that in the current political environment, Senator Warnock should be in deep trouble and Governor Kemp should get reelected. I think that there's a case to be made there. My primary concern is ongoing divisiveness and mistrust and, you know, internal disputes undermining and sort of harming in a significant way GOP unity, which is precisely what the problem was in January. Yeah, look, Georgians, everywhere I go in the state and, and, and uh, when I'm trying to help Brian Kemp get reelected, and, and I've announced I'm not running again, not right. because I don't like the job. In fact, I love it. I'm just going to focus all my efforts on GOP 2.0 and have a conversation with our country over the next three and a half years trying to get them uh, on board. But, uh, you know, everywhere I go and I talk about Governor Kemp, uh, they, they literally have a chance 
to, to reelect the most conservative governor in Georgia's history. Uh, this guy has gone to work every single day thinking about small businesses. Uh, all, you don't have to go any further than seeing what we've done with COVID and uh, trying to balance lives and livelihoods. We have one of the lowest unemployment rates in the country. We've built our, our cash reserves as a state government in, in, in the tune of multiple billions of dollars. Uh, we've got AAA bond ratings. I mean, we are doing the things that conservatives hired us to do uh, in this state. The only thing that just doesn't make sense in certain circles is we, we've somehow fallen in the crosshairs of the former president. That's unfortunate. Uh, Governor Kemp continues to look past that and not try to uh, sway him from being a, a rock-solid conservative. Uh, my hope is that that entire apparatus that thinks that the election was, was, was rigged and all that, uh, I respect their opinion. I don't agree with it. But it's time for them to leave Georgia alone and let us get Republicans back in charge so that we can make sure that Senate is run by Republicans and at least be one firewall on, uh, on democracy uh, against the Biden administration. So speaking of that Senate race, you had an op-ed recently at the Washington Examiner talking about the Republican frontrunner for U.S. Senate who would face Raphael Warnock, and that, of course, is Herschel Walker, the bulldog standout for many years, beloved in the state, huge sports star. He also has, I think it's fair to say, uh, some shortcomings and some vulnerabilities as a potential political candidate, as did Warnock, by the way. He had some really serious oppo against him. Didn't seem to matter because of the food fight happening over on the Republican side of things. But you were asking the question in your op-ed, does Herschel Walker have what it takes to actually win a statewide election? He's got the backing of President Trump. He's the runaway favorite, at least in the polling that I've seen so far, to win the nomination. What is your sense of Herschel Walker so far in this realm, and how does that play into sort of the themes and theses within GOP 2.0? So full disclosure, I played baseball at Georgia Tech, so it's hard to root for a bulldog, but uh, (laughs) nonpartisan position here. Look, I give give Herschel Walker all the credit in the world for putting his name on the paperwork. Uh, It is a daunting challenge. My wife and I have done it to run statewide. We've got three kids, uh, busy life, uh, so I respect him for it. Uh, I don't know much about his politics. I don't think anybody in Georgia does yet. He certainly hasn't put any sort of policy positions out there other than he's very good friends with the former president, and uh, certainly it looks like he's going to come in to help him. But, look, my my encouragement to him and any Republican listening, whether they're running for office or they're voting for somebody in office, is we got to start doing a better job of of making sure we focus on winning the game and not just winning the first half. Right? It, It doesn't do us any good to win the first half and lose the game. Right. If we come in second place in elections, that means we lost. That means we don't have a seat at the table. And that's what's playing out in D.C. right now. Right. We we, we unfortunately didn't win the White House. We lost the House a few years ago. We lost the Senate in, in what felt like a fumble uh, close to the end zone. And and here we go. We have no seat at the table to talk about all the things that matter to us. Limited government. That's a runaway freight train. I mean, you know, our Second Amendment rights, uh, all of our all of our health care decisions, how we react globally. All of that is is on pause if you're a Republican and care about your conservative values. One criticism, and this is my last question, goes back to your decision not to run again, not to seek re-election for lieutenant governor in Georgia, because some critics are saying, well, that's fine, he wants to do this national project and try to fix the party. Wouldn't the best way to demonstrate that your vision can work is to run and win again? But people are saying, oh, well, he can't run and win again because, you know, Trump has attacked him so much. And so he's persona non grata among so many Republicans. You know, you can't bring the coalition back together around someone like that. What's your response to that critique that I've seen floating around? 
Yeah, and that was the weight my wife and I put on, on the scale sitting around the kitchen table when we made this decision. But at the end of the day, I ran a poll right before we made the decision, and we could have won a primary, and we certainly would have probably gotten more statewide votes than anybody else running for office in Georgia. Uh, but look, this is a bandwidth issue. I, I want to have a conversation with with 350 million Americans about why it's important for conservative values to be uh, in leadership roles all across this country. And I don't have enough time in the day to win a, a statewide election over the next 15 months and try to heal and rebuild the Republican Party between now and 2024, because the ultimate goal of GOP 2.0 is very, very simple. It's to, it's to significantly influence who the Republican nominee is in 2024. Not because we all agree on every single matter of fact, but because we agree that our approach matters. And we implement what I call the pet project, policy, empathy, and tone. And every speech we give is about winning the game, not just winning the first half. Every policy position we take is about being inclusive and trying to grow the size of the tent so that we don't just squeak out a 50.1% win over the White House. We do what Ronald Reagan did in his second term and win by 17 million votes in 1984. That's what we need to be doing because i got to be honest with you, Guy. Our policies line up way better than the Democrats do across this country. And we should be winning these elections with wider margins than we are and even losing some of them. If what my guest is saying is resonating with you and you're interested in learning more, you can pick up a copy now or order a copy of GOP 2.0, authored by Jeff Duncan, the sitting lieutenant governor, a Republican in the state of Georgia. Mr. Lieutenant Governor, appreciate your thoughts and your time, and I look forward to seeing how this project moves forward. Thanks, Guy. I appreciate it. You bet. We'll break. We'll come back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. As we continue here on The Guy Benson Show, yesterday we talked about the Met Gala and AOC and that whole flap. And she, of course, is firing back at her critics because this is what she does. This is what she lives for, right? This is exactly what she hoped would happen, frankly. But she is accusing her critics of being, quote, disdainful and unsupportive of working-class women of color like herself. And what's, I think, ironic here is she's actually experiencing social advancement, right? She's no longer a bartender, and I don't say that critically. She's now a member of Congress. She's earning six figures. She drives a Tesla. She's going to the Met Gala. She is in a different station of life. She's in a different position of life. I'm not sure that she's able to wrap herself authentically in the working class banner anymore because she's not. She's no longer working class. I know that she wants to pretend, and many of her fellow travelers want to pretend that that kind of advancement isn't possible in America, especially for people who look like her, except she's experiencing it. She's living it. As to the criticism, she says that she's rich, or that critique. She said, no, 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 I don't count as rich. Rich has a different definition. Cut 20. I mean, this is the trick that people use all the time, right? They want you to think that when we talk about rich, we're talking about a doctor or a lawyer instead of someone with hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. That's what we mean by rich. Actually, no. The trick is to pretend otherwise, as a matter of fact. If you look at the Democrats' policies, and especially the squad's policies, and the massive tax increases that they endorse and support over and over again, they want to 
increase taxes certainly on anyone who even approaches quote-unquote rich and in some cases people in the middle class and working class as well it's not just about people with hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars if that were the case we'd be having a very different conversation so that I think is deeply misleading from AOC but if that's her new definition of what counts as the rich I would be very interested in having that debate I'd imagine she would have to retreat from that talking point pretty quickly if she thought through the implications, the policy implications of that definition that she just articulated. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. A.B. Stoddard will join us after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Wednesday Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Our online home here at the show is GuyBensonShow.com. Lots of ways to listen live and across our great affiliates, many different platforms. And if you miss the live broadcast, we have a podcast. It is free, on demand, every single day. GuyBensonShow.com. And the happy hour sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is crisp. It is really, really tasty. It is growing in popularity across the nation, and they are good friends of ours here. And they've been sponsoring the happy hour now for well over a year. We're grateful for that. You should try it. Many of you have. And send me messages when you try it. I love hearing that stuff. I pass it along to them. TheLongDrink.com is their website. TheLongDrink.com. 21 plus only. And always drink responsibly. With us now is A.B. Stoddard, associate editor and columnist at Real Clear Politics. And A.B., it's great to have you back. Great to be with you, Guy. Well, let's start with some bad news uh, for the Republican Party. Then I want to move into some more heartening news for the GOP. I am not surprised at all. I'm a bit surprised by the margin and how disastrous this turned out. But the recall out in California, I mean, it is a deep, deep blue state. It looked like it maybe had a chance to be competitive about a month ago. And then I think the Democrats really start to focus and spend a lot of money, and they set up Larry Elder as a foil and turn it into a choice in a very heavily Democratic state as opposed to a referendum on the incumbent. Ended up being really a blowout. It was not close last night. That's just a moribund party out there for the Republicans, sort of their state apparatus. What are your big takeaways from Gavin Newsom's lopsided triumph? Yeah, um... I think a lot of people are saying it was always going to be fine for him, and I don't agree uh, because of the way that the the recall um, laws are constructed. The way the way that the rules go, he, he, Newsom did have to to clear fifty percent, um, and if he didn't, he could have uh, been replaced as governor by someone with far fewer votes, and that leader of the pack would have been Larry Elder. And I think actually for Democrats, it was going to be, I thought it could be hard maybe to get everybody uh, to turn out um, when they're um, 
frustrated and uh, a year and a half into, pan- into a pandemic don't maybe think much of Gavin Newsom and are not energized um, and uh, are checked out and in, in, in a, you know, in a, in a recall election, and, and we know special elections um, is the least turnout, and um, and you know midterm elections see weak turnout, and presidential t- t- uh, you know elections see the most turnout. So, I actually thought he could easily get clipped um, when we were looking at that polling, whenever it was before they started to get scared. But I think the prospects of Larry Elder being able to actually pull this out and then being a Senate, I mean, uh, being a governor who could replace Dianne Feinstein, who's 88 years old, who has some health concerns, should she step down with a Republican, thereby throwing the, the Senate to the, to a Republican majority, um, and setting up even a scenario in which um, another Republican justice could be confirmed to the Supreme Court conservative justice that I think that energized people into you know sort of a quasi panic and they started to mobilize and take it really seriously but um, it, it, that, that even though it's a blue state there was a there was a path for a Republican win and it's because it's much easier to win in a recall than in a head to head matchup well it ended up being a, a pretty wide canyon. On the yes-no question, Larry Elder won overwhelmingly, right? He was close to 50% in a hugely crowded field among those who had voted yes on recall, but many more voted no on recall. And so the second question became academic. And I've seen some people saying, well, you know, if Kevin Faulkner, who is the, the mayor in San Diego, he was more palatable to more people, he would have made this more of a referendum on the incumbent, and it would be harder to attack him and demonize him the way that they did with Larry Elder. I mean, that might be true, and there was some data in the internals from the exit polls that suggested there were an awful lot of people who voted no on recall, but then went and voted for Kevin Faulkner in case there was a recall, they wanted him. But ultimately, it was kind of a drop in the bucket. Elder was the runaway train there with the most passionate support among those who were the most passionate people in favor of the recall, I'm not really sure that a different Republican necessarily would have done all that much better. I mean, maybe a bit better. I'm not sure if it would have allowed the yes on recall to get over 50%. I mean, maybe, but I guess I'm very cynical about California. I mean, it just seems like it's so far gone, A.B. I guess that's my read on it. Really down to the details about California is probably not a microcosm of where the party stands for next year, 2024. Right. So, right. So it's not, it's probably not that informative or predictive. But, um, you know, the argument will be made that if you have a guy who has said outrageous things in the past that, you know, are going to turn off swing voters and suburban moms who might have voted Republican, um, maybe that's a mistake. So, you know, yeah, anytime you set up a foil, um, where people can liken, uh, the candidate to President Trump, um, that well, could energize Democratic turnout. But yeah, I don't think this was entirely ever. about that. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And you sort of made this point, I'm not sure you can read too many tea leaves about 2022 by looking at this recall event out in one of the bluest states in the country. Something that I think is more instructive and generally is a metric that's much more interesting is presidential approval rating as we move toward 2022. And on that front, your website, the poll tracker has President Biden not on a good trajectory in terms of his approval rating. He's now underwater. That started to flip about a month ago, and it has not recovered. In fact, he's gotten worse. He's lost standing. And then there was this Quinnipiac poll that we mentioned on the air yesterday in passing. Quinnipiac has been a pollster that has been 
overwhelmingly pro-democratic in recent cycles, sometimes embarrassingly so, where they've missed outcomes in big races in important states by significant margins, always overestimating Democratic support in some of these examples that come to mind. Their new poll from Quinnipiac, which was conducted completely after President Biden announced his vaccine mandate attempt or that policy, has him underwater on overall approval by eight points with a majority disapproving of his handling of the position. And when you look at issues, he's basically running even on COVID, which is supposed to be his bread and butter. He's underwater by 10 points on the economy. He's underwater by more than 30 points on the Afghanistan withdrawal and the way that that was conducted. And with independence, he's only got a 34% approval rating. And, A.B., when you look at those, I know it's just one poll, but it, it aligns with broader trends. And it also is from this one pollster that usually has rosier numbers for Democrats. When you look at this, I would imagine this has to be an alarm bell situation for both the White House and the Democratic Party when you're thinking about Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and their prospects heading into next fall. Okay, well, I've been of the mind that Republicans were going to take back the House having nothing to do with uh, Biden's approval ratings, even when he was up at 53%, because of the three factors that are the most important. And those are the four-seat margin, the historical trends that uh, bring headwinds to the party in power and give... um, uh, and give the out party an advantage in the first uh, midterm of a first presidential term, and then the third being redistricting, which could bring them three to eight seats right. uh, before election night. So that was when the president was at 53% or 52, you know, averaging in there. Um, in the Quinnipiac poll that you mentioned, he's actually, Biden is actually underwater on his COVID response. Right, by a point. Uh, COVID is everything. And so his numbers were falling with independence before Afghanistan, and that is because the country was very buoyed by the fact that the administration performed on vaccine distribution in the spring. We all got vaccinated in May, by May or early June. The economy was rebounding and everything looked like there would be a new, pretty good normal uh, on its way. And that was before the surge of the Delta variant and the the debacle with Afghanistan, which really, really hurt the president as well. But you see COVID as the overlay and that began before those, before that. So, so unless and until the, the administration gives the public the feeling that the, that the pandemic is under control, it doesn't matter how many checks they receive in the mail. It doesn't matter um, how many Americans get out of Afghanistan and come home safely. It, it, they will look at the future um, at six months out, six weeks out even, and worry um, about their prospects and their livelihood. And so um, that's the pro- that is a problem for President Biden and his party. But I already see, I already saw them losing the midterms anyway. I think is a good chance. I, I definitely think the they the House. I think is a good right? chance they can take the Senate. Yeah, the, the margins could matter, right? If Biden's at fifty one versus forty three. That yeah, can make right. A I mean, yeah, right? and look, I mean that that was President Trump's problem. They, your your presidential approval rating always matters in in midterms. So that so that's why you know you knew President Trump spent his presidency underwater. You you go into the midterms in 2018 and you knew he was going to lose seats. You just didn't know how many. Uh, I, right therein lies a huge gulf. Right? Does Kevin McCarthy become speaker and he has a five seat majority or a 35 seat majority? We don't know, guy, whether uh, President Biden. Approval will edge back up to 48. Um, 
you know, or ever make it oh, over yeah, I mean, 50 again. Factors, I'm, I'm, right? I'm saying that I think they lose the House, and you're right. Maybe they lose instead of six seats. Maybe they lose 26. We, we you know, it's it, obviously we're going to have to look at things next year. But I think they're already at the cliff, and if they don't know that, they're in the wrong business. Yeah, I mean, inflation's also in the mix there. I saw a poll out or a survey from the New York Fed asking American consumers about their expectations on inflation, and it was not good, because expectations can sort of sometimes influence and fuel reality, and people are expecting inflation to remain uh, significant for a number of years, and that also plays into how people are feeling about the economy. A.B., one more question. I want to tap into your excellent sourcing on Capitol Hill. One thing that I've always noticed, especially about Speaker Pelosi, is she does not lose legislative fights when she's in control if there's going to be a vote on the floor of the house she's almost always going to win it they have been pretty reticent about bringing certain things to the floor because whether it's in the house certainly in the senate with joe manchin kirsten cinema they were both at the white house meeting with joe biden today on this mega bill this democrat only reconciliation spending bonanza it doesn't seem like the votes are really there yet, and the warring factions within the Democratic Party seem to be in a bit of disarray at the moment. Where do things stand on this huge amount of spending, and how do you see this playing out right now? Yeah, so Guy, um, I think one of the things that the White House has done well, and I might have mentioned this in, 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 you know, on your show before this year, um, I don't know that they do a lot of things well, but one of the things they've done well is to keep the progressives quiet for a very long time. We're now midway through September, it's the 15th, and it's been about two weeks now that you've heard progressives squawking on Twitter, Bernie Sanders issuing threats to Politico, and them sort of flexing their muscles on how they're going to spend what they want to spend, and they've already made the bill small enough, thank you so much. I think all we need to do is listen to the words of the majority assistant majority leader, and he is sort of the de facto vice president, and that's Jim Clyburn, who are telling us there is never a ceiling of 3.5. We can do something much smaller. It all depends how um, we allocate the, uh, the the resources and what the pay-fors are. Um, and that is because the math has never changed, and Joe Manchin was always going to drive this bus. And so even though Bernie Sanders is the budget committee chairman in the Senate, and he wants this and he wants that, um, in the end, they're they're not going to get what the progressives uh, the progressives are not going to get what they want. Well, because that's, that's just a mathematical reality. Yeah, I mean that's sort of my read on it too. Which is, if it's going to be Mansion and Cinema and maybe a few other like-minded Democrats in the House driving the bus, as you say, if they can end up saying this is what we're comfortable with, these are the pay-fors that we're comfortable with. The total amount of money is you know 1.5 trillion lower than what you're asking for, or two trillion dollars less than 3.5, which is what all the progressives are saying. No, that's that's our bare minimum. That's just a down payment. If they eventually have to work with Mansion and work within his guidelines, is there any chance that that is so unacceptable to the progressives that they torpedo the bill, or are they? All bark, no bite. They'll whine and complain and then swallow it anyway because it's a lot of government spending and they won't, you know, blow up the process. Well, two things. One, the Progressive Caucus is 100 members strong, but it's not full of 100 members who will defy Nancy Pelosi, right? So in the end, 
the, the, the maneuvering right now is to get a standalone bill because some of the transportation provisions in the physical infrastructure mansion bill that 19 Republican senators supported are expiring soon. And there's no move to do any kind of extensions of those, which means there is very likely a standalone vote, September 27 or 28, whether the progressives like it or not, on an actual bill that could go to the president's desk. And there is a lot of maneuvering behind the scenes to make sure that they get between 20 and 29 and in their dreams, 40 Republican House members. I think it'll be around 20 uh, to support them to make up for the numbers on the progressives who they lose. That Once that bill is out the door and becomes law, the progressives have a choice. Do you want a bill or do you want no bill? At that point, the size of it won't matter anymore. They're going to get the bill they're going to get that can get through the Senate. It was the leverage they had in holding the first transportation and energy bill hostage. That, that was what they had. And, and what we're looking at now is the likelihood that they're going to lose that leverage and that this will no longer be passed simultaneously. And that, which, would, and, which would be, by the way, a climb down from Pelosi. She would blink if that is what happens. We'll be watching carefully. A.B. very plugged in on Capitol Hill. A.B. Stoddard, the associate editor, columnist at Real Clear Politics. A.B., always a pleasure. Let's talk soon. Thanks so much, Guy. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. We'll be right back after this. Guy Benson will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Happy Hour on the Guy Benson Show. I saw this clip the other day. I wanted to get around to it. So some left-wingers showed up at Justice Kavanaugh's family's house. Right? They do this. They find people's address. They don't just harass them in public and at restaurants. They come to their homes where their spouses and children live. And I guess the most recent excuse to do this was they were unhappy with the Texas uh, abortion jurisprudence from the Supreme Court. So they showed up and they started chanting and ranting and raving. Here's a little clip of it. Cut 21. My body! My body! My body! My body! My body! Yeah, so they're chanting, my body, my voice. I find it somewhat ironic that it sounds like the person leading that chant is a man. We'll just set that off to the side for a moment. Perhaps people like this aren't that concerned about optics and how they're perceived because I think it is just so clearly out of bounds to show up at someone's home and behave this way. But they've done it. They've done it to Mitch McConnell. They've done it to Senator Hawley. They've done it to Tucker Carlson. They've done it to Secretary Wolf. They've done it to Justice Kavanaugh. I mean, off the top of my head, I just came up with five examples. Peace and Bloomberg noting that senators on the Judiciary Committee from both parties condemning this, Republicans unsurprisingly, but also some of the leading Democrats, Dick Durbin, Pat Leahy. I mean, when they're condemning you and they're on your side, you must be really out of bounds. But the hard left, they cannot help themselves. And it reminds me of a story that we told during Woke Tales recently, the book burnings up in Canada in a school district, books deemed offensive, literally throwing them into a conflagration and burning them. If you are on the side of the book burners, literally, you're on the wrong side. And if you're in a mob that showed up at someone's house, you're on the wrong side. You're the bad guy. I know you think you're not. I know you are confident that you are absolutely righteous in your cause. That's not how most people see it. This is really gross. Counterproductive, so actually maybe helpful 
to the other side. I don't want to say keep it up, but these people are their own worst enemies sometimes. Really gross. It's the Guy Benson Show. The happy hour continues right after this break. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. In our first hour, Steve Hayes joined us, Fox News contributor, editor, and CEO of The Dispatch. I follow him on Twitter at Stephen F. Hayes, and that's Stephen with a PH. Here's part of my conversation with Steve Hayes on Afghanistan, D.C. politics, and more. Talk about Afghanistan. It's an issue that I don't want to just let slip away. I saw this come across from the Washington Post and from National Review. Josh Rogan was emphasizing this on social media. Apparently, the U.S. State Department is urging Afghan allies who were abandoned in a broken promise to them by the United States, by the president of the United States, those who are desperate to get out of a country run now by a terrorist organization that would like to see them dead. The State Department is urging them to go to a U.S. embassy in a neighboring country. And I'm sure they would love to do something like that. Part of the issue is getting out of the country, which is the whole point, Steve. I mean, it it just seems like the embarrassment compounds on a daily basis. Exactly. Now, that's very well put. I mean, I think we're learning more and more both about what took place in the week's leading up to our withdrawal and sort of final abandonment of both American citizens and our Afghan allies. But we're also going to continue to hear these stories. These are not going to end because nobody has a real grip on the exact number of Afghans uh, who were eligible to to leave um, or who helped us. But we know that we left tens of thousands of them in country. And some of them are starting to speak out. I think for a while they were reluctant to speak out or, or to speak out under their own name because they still held the hope that the United States would make good on its promises and do the right thing. They've lost that hope now in many cases. And they've decided to speak out and, and tell their stories because they don't know what else to do. They know that staying in Afghanistan with the Taliban reportedly having uh, many lists of the Afghan nationals who worked with the U.S. government and the U.S. military in Afghanistan for years makes them sitting ducks. So they're increasingly, I think, willing to speak out if for no other reason than to, to, to show that, that we did abandon them and that we did break our promises. It's really just a, a, an unfortunate situation and that it's not getting better. And just a reminder of the barbarity of the Taliban, there was a report that Jim Garrity shared from his sources on the ground that the Taliban just recently executed two children. They beheaded two children, allegedly aged 9 and 10. I mean, this is, this is who the Taliban is. This should not be a surprise to anyone. You were talking about some folks now finally speaking up because they've realized just how completely and comprehensively the promises that were made to them, the solemn life-and-death promises that were made to them have just completely been discarded and thrown away, whether it's you know through this type of recommendation, oh, just shelter in place, try to find a U.S. embassy in some other country, maybe ask the U.N. for help. They recognize that if not for private efforts, 
from Americans about which, by the way, the Biden administration has been complaining in the media about, you know, how meddlesome that has been and, and not helpful, which really takes some real chutzpah to criticize any effort to actually fulfill these promises. People are it's dawning on them what their new, very frightening reality is. And you were amplifying on social some reporting done at your website, The Dispatch, uh, just within the last few days, quoting one gentleman by name who seemed distraught and utterly betrayed. Talk about that. Yeah, we have a a really terrific piece uh, on The Dispatch website right now by Charlotte Lawson, my colleague, who has been in touch. She's been following the story from the beginning has been in touch with Afghans on the ground who, who were left. And you know, I think this goes to the first question you asked, Guy, uh, with the, the U.S. government now advising people to get out of the country and then go uh, to U.S. consular offices elsewhere. Some of them can't, right? Some of them are elderly and not in a position to just get out of the country, even if they had wanted to, even if they weren't concerned about risking their, their lives fleeing the Taliban, they literally physically can't in some cases. And Charlotte writes about uh, a young man who's trying to get out of the, the uh, was, was trying to get out of Afghanistan, uh, had been pushing for, for days, uh, not trying to cash in on his contacts, given uh, the, the number of years that he worked with senior U.S. military officials, but having very little luck, finally gets uh, on, on a flight out, one of the last flights out, from uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport in, in Kabul, uh, but is not allowed to take his mother, who is sick, very sick. And uh, she was at the airport, near the airport, when uh, the, the suicide bombing took place. And she's left in country. She's not in a position to pick up and go to another country. That interview between yours truly and Steve Hayes, available on demand as part of our daily free podcast, the entire show, at your fingertips, no charge, totally free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, an additional series of tributes to the great Norm MacDonald, a comedian who often had me in tears with laughter I went down the rabbit hole last night after his passing from cancer, and I was howling on the couch. I got to play you some of this audio. You're going to love it. More belly laughs, courtesy of the late Norm MacDonald. Straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Homestretch on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Yesterday we got the news that Norm MacDonald, a very funny comedian, had passed away at the age of 61. He'd been fighting cancer for years, had not told basically anyone. So his fans, many of his friends, did not know that he was in that battle. And he died yesterday, and the tributes just came flowing in. He was widely admired, beloved, respected by comics. I mean, I did not see one negative word about him. Even on Twitter, where all you see is negative words. People came out of the woodwork, famous people all the way down to fans who were sharing their experiences, their favorite one-liners. Videos were flying. We talked about it briefly on the show yesterday. I played a few clips from him. And then last night, I went down sort of the wormhole 
on Norm MacDonald and was just watching clip after clip, YouTube video after YouTube video. A bunch of buddies and I are in a group chat, and we were shooting links back and forth to each other. And I was just cracking up. And one of my favorite things is when he would do interviews on late-night shows, the hosts could barely contain themselves with him. They were frequently just not able to keep it together. They would just lose it, which was a lot of fun to watch. And, Christine, you were saying that you ended up watching a lot of Norm last night, right? Well, I was watching all the clips that you had tweeted, and then I started doing, you know, going down the rabbit hole myself. And, oh, my goodness, how funny he was. And I just, I love the deadpan, the look he would give you. Right, a slight smirk sometimes, deadpan, when he would bomb on purpose, when he would tell ridiculous stories for a small payoff, but sort of the journey was almost the point. He was a bit rambling and seemed scatterbrained, but he was doing something very specific in actually a deceptively disciplined way. Uh, Just a joy. And he is a great, great loss to the world of comedy. And, you know, the word fearless gets thrown around. And we live in a very fearful society because of cancel culture and woke mobs and all this stuff. He truly was one of them who did not care. Like Joan Rivers style. Like, what are you going to do? I'm Norm MacDonald. I'm going to say the thing. So one video that I enjoyed in particular, it was long. This YouTube video started. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's half an hour. Am I going to watch this for half an hour? Oh, you bet I watched it for half an hour. I ended up tweeting it if you want to find it. At Guy P. Benson. So Norm was the weekend update anchor, you know, the fake news guy on SNL for a number of years. And during that period of time, one of the biggest stories in the world was the O.J. Simpson trial, and Norm was absolutely relentless about O.J. He felt, I mean, for obvious reasons, that O.J. was guilty, and made this abundantly clear with the jokes that he would tell, not just month after month during the trial, but even for months afterward, because there was the civil trial and all this stuff, and there were people who clearly weren't comfortable with it, and there were accusations that some executives were uncomfortable with the jokes and and just how brutal he was to OJ, but he would not back down. And as I watched this 30, 35-minute video play out, which was just a spliced together highlight reel of every OJ joke that this guy made from the weekend update desk. I was at times laughing so hard I had to pause the video because I didn't want to miss the next one. That's how good it was. Just unsparing. There might be some people in this audience who think OJ was innocent. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what I can what I can tell you there. In my opinion, he was not man was guilty. On this, Norm MacDonald and I clearly agree. If you also agree, I think you will find this savagery to be delightful and hilarious, as I did. I want to just play you a few. I mean, I we had to pick half a dozen out of dozens. And we're leaving some excellent material on the cutting room floor because we only have so much time here in this homestretch segment. But just, you know, for example... This was actually the only clip that was not at the SNL desk, at the Weekend Update desk. This was when Norm MacDonald 
hosted the ESPYs, the ESPN Award, kind of like the sports Oscars. One of those years, he was the MC, and he made this comment, cut 22. And there's Charles Woodson. How about that? Oh, what a season he had. Great, man. He, he became the first defensive player to win the Heisman Trophy. And congratulations, Charles. That is something that no one can ever take away from you. Unless you kill your wife and a waiter, in which case... <laughs> I can't imagine him or anyone getting away with that kind of thing today. little aside, you've won your Heisman Trophy. That's something no one can ever take away from you. Unless you kill your wife and a waiter. <laughs> because OJ, of course, famously was stripped of his Heisman. Now to Saturday Night Live... Cut 23. O.J. Simpson's lawyers have decided to skip hearings on DNA evidence and go right to trial. Asked why they did this, the lawyers replied, we want to get O.J. acquitted as speedily as possible so he can get back to doing what he does best, killing people. (laughs) In a similar vein, we have this joke. Cut 26. Let's get to O.J. O.J. Simpson's lawyers say they don't want the families of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman in the courtroom during the trial. They're afraid the presence of the family members will just remind O.J. of how much more killing he still has to do. (laughs) And they just have the the -the over-the-shoulder graphic of O.J. with Norm shuffling his papers, just deadpanning. These, (laughs) These completely brutal lines. And the audience almost always laughs. There are scattered boos from time to time. Remember, there, there was a, a very heavily political element to this. Norm did not care. It was his bit. He was committed to it. He was obviously disgusted by what happened in the trial and was not going to let it go. I mean, like a dog with a bone, and good for him. And, I mean, there was so much material, basically endless. I like this one. Cut 28. Listen. In an effort to raise money for his enormous legal bills, O.J. Simpson this week began marketing a video which attempts to prove his innocence. Should the tape not sell, Simpson has a backup idea, his very own video of the actual murders themselves. <laughs> uh, this Okay, this next one, this next one, for some reason, completely slayed me. I was crying tears out of both eyes uncontrollably. It was that funny. Cut 27. In a surprise move, O.J. Simpson has offered to give an interview to CNN with, quote, absolutely no ground rules. But interviewers Greta Van Susteren and Roger Cossack have asked for one. Don't kill us. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is good. And, of course, we know Greta a little bit from her time here at Fox. used to do her panel. And we do have one rule, Mr. Simpson. You have no ground rules. We we have one, please. No murder here. And then, last but not least, I mean, it is just unflinching. Just in your face. Cut 24. In his book, O.J. Simpson says that he would have taken a bullet or stood in front of a train for Nicole. Man, I'm going to tell you, that is some bad luck when the one guy who would have died for you kills you. That's probably... (laughs) 
Uh, and on and on it went for 35 minutes. I tweeted it last night. Guy P. Benson on Twitter. Also Guy P. Benson on Instagram, by the way. I didn't post any of the OJ stuff on Instagram. But it was 35 minutes well spent. I think our production team had a lot of fun cutting it up. It's probably one of the more enjoyable assignments I've ever given them about audio that I want. Usually it's like, hey, can we get that latest thing that Blinken said? Oh, yeah, what did Saki say? No, I was like, let's get six amazing jokes about O.J. Simpson by Norm MacDonald. I hate that we had to do it in the context of mourning the loss of Norm MacDonald. And a few of the clips along the way that I saw last night were Norm being, you know, completely irreverent, sort of in the nothing sacred mindset about death itself. He had a whole bit on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart about Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter's death. That was, you know, again, I would never dream of making these points, but they were hilarious. Jon Stewart was begging him through tears and laughter, please stop, I don't want to laugh publicly about this. He also talked about battling cancer and dying of cancer in a funny way. This was long before he was diagnosed. So he was willing to go there, so to speak, which is why I saw one joke written about him online yesterday that some people might wince over. I laughed out loud because I think Norm would have laughed out loud, which was Norm MacDonald, comedian, Dead at 61, he was murdered by O.J. Simpson. (laughs) Oh, gosh. He may not be your cup of tea. He may not have your style of humor. The fact that he was so well regarded by his peers, I think, is an achievement. And maybe you don't know much about him. Maybe you'll go down the same rabbit hole tonight because of this little teaser. Give him a shot. I think he appreciated laughs. He knew how to earn them, and we will miss the humor, the wit, the sarcasm, and the deadpan delivery of that rascally Canadian, Norm MacDonald. And with that, we are done here this evening. Back on the Guy Benson Show for the Thursday edition tomorrow. We will talk to you then. Enjoy your evening. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.